The following episode of All Together includes a first-person account of sexual assault and may be difficult or inappropriate for some listeners. The violent crime of rape not only harms the body and the mind, it can devastate the spirit. Questions of how God could let this happen shake the foundations of belief. Faith can be another casualty in the crime of sexual assault. For my guest today, her faith was shaken, tested, and formed by her own experience of rape. Welcome to this week's All Together, the podcast dedicated to exploring ethics, religion, and spiritual practice in daily life. My name is Paul Rauschenbusch, and I'm the executive editor of Global Spirituality and Religion at the Huffington Post and the host of All Together. You can download All Together on iTunes or Stitcher. Today I'm talking to the Reverend Dr. Lucy A. Forrester-Smith, who is Sedgwick Chaplain to the University and Senior Minister in the Memorial Church at Harvard University. Her latest book is called Crossing Thresholds, The Making and Remaking of a College Chaplain. In her book, she details the devastating effect of her own experience of sexual assault. Chaplain Lucy Forrester-Smith, welcome to All Together. Thank you. So, congratulations. You are at Harvard, which is an amazing place to be. Um, From the outside, it looks like the perfect place to land. Um, One of the things I wanted to really get into today um, with you is what's happening on college campuses specifically around... um, sexual assault. Mm -hmm. And with you, because you've just released this book um, where you talk about yourself being sexually assaulted, you come from a very, um, this is a core issue in some ways, perhaps. So I wonder if you can take us back. um, And again, I, I don't... It's almost uncomfortable for me even to ask these questions, which is, I think, part of the problem is I can't, I, I, I think we're so, many of us are so uncomfortable, maybe especially men, talking about this that we prefer not to talk about it. Exactly. So maybe mm-hmm. you can just address that issue and then, and then take us back. And then I would love to get into your healing and now your activism about um, addressing what appears to be an epidemic of sexual assault on college campuses. Okay. Well, when I was a seminarian, I worked one summer out in Washington State. I was doing an internship for the Presbyterian Church out there. And at the end of the summer, I was in a church, and I was alone, and uh, heard the door open to the church. I was actually typing up my final report for the um, summer internship that I had had. It was August. It was 1976. And the door opened to the church and in came a man. And I didn't really even pay much attention, but he was standing. He came into the church office where I was and he was standing beside me. And I looked up and I said, may I help you? Assuming that he was there to use a restroom or had business in the church. And I was alone 
in the church at that moment. And the man then uh, said to me, take off your clothes. And I looked up at him and I just was really confused. And then I looked down and he was holding a knife. And uh, what ensued following that was that I was raped at uh, knife point by this man. Um, he, uh, I assumed that he was going to do more harm than raping me. I assumed that he might even be out to murder me. And um, I was terrified. At that point, I was in Washington State essentially alone because the supervisor for the internship and his wife were out of town on vacation. It was August. Um, they had gone on vacation. I was living with a family temporarily just in the neighborhood. I didn't know the family well enough. They were members of the church, but they were not close friends. And when the assault was over and the rapist zipped up, he then turned around, put his knife. He had had his knife sort of very available <laughs> during during the rape. He was not threatening with me with it or holding it over me or anything like that, but I was aware that it was there. And when he left, he closed the, it was a pocket knife, and he turned around to me and he said, if you call the cops, I'll come back and kill you. So again, absolutely feeling so alone and also realizing that I was in a church, all of the assumptions about the sort of protection of a space, the protection of a church, of people feeling always had felt very safe in, a, in churches, suddenly realizing that what had happened to me not only was a horrible thing uh, in terms of being a young woman, a very sexually inexperienced young woman, to be honest with you. And then to realize that I was in a church that, again, had been a fairly protected space in my own experience growing up. And what I realized was that when that man walked out the door, that in some ways my understanding of a God that would protect us, that would be present to us, sort of walked out the, the door with him. And so... It's it's a shattering story, um, and and I think one of um, just going back to your book, I think one of the um, important aspects of the book that you wrote was perhaps from the outside you come to know a pastor or a chaplain, and you think, oh, these are people who's who's really who really know about God and who really like you know just love God and it's been you know and the reason they're doing this is because it's all been really easy for them and faith is really natural to them. And I think that one of the things that you talk about is that it's it's not that. In fact, it's almost the opposite. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. Um, I think that being, having had the experience of a very shattering event in my life at a pretty formative time in my life. So I was a student. I was uh, at a point in my own uh, vocational discernment trying to figure out whether I was going to be a professor or perhaps go into chaplaincy because I thought that I wanted to work in an academic environment. And because of that, um, I was I was at a very what I might call a pretty vulnerable place in my life trying to figure out all of that and then to have this experience right at that moment and to recognize that all of the questions about 
who is God? Who am I? What, is, what does it mean to be a woman in this culture today? What does it mean to be in a place where, um, in my own life, where I'm not sure if I can even go on uh, after that experience? I, was, I actually was in denial for a while and then suddenly began to have very difficult, I guess what we might call today post-traumatic stress, where I was unable to concentrate, I was having nightmares, and eventually wound up finding some good support at the seminary where I was going um, with a professor who was doing counseling with people and helped me really begin to um, reinterpret or re-engage my faith. Uh-huh. What but, did that look like? Well, what it looked like was really a recognition that God does not abandon human beings, even in moments of deep, deep crisis, and especially in moments of deep crisis. And I, I really, I had some pretty powerful experiences of the presence of God following the rape. And one of the things that happened right after the rape, literally within a couple minutes of the man, the rapist leaving, was that I had the experience of thinking, he didn't kill me, and I'm here on purpose. There is some reason that I survived this, and I need to figure out what that was. Now, that was a fleeting thought, because what really took place after that was this deep sense of, I don't know if I can continue on the path of seminary. I don't feel like I can really be in churches anymore. I don't feel like I can be safe in these environments, and I really don't know what the future holds. Well, that but, gets into my next question. When you're in those moments, I mean, there's there's part of our, our the way we react, which is we put one step in front of the other. Yes, um, exactly. But then there's also a discernment process that is more intentional. Yes. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, because I think that's another thing that your book gets into, is how do you decide where to go, what to do, especially when the choices aren't clear and you have a lot of um, uh, even trust issues with with going forward. Right. Well, fortunately for me, um, I had I had friends at seminary that really encouraged me to think about going to talk with this particular professor who was a man, and I think that there were some obstacles in my way of thinking of going to talk with a man because I felt very, very vulnerable. And I thought, uh, you know, I don't know what this is going to be like. I'm not sure I can talk about this experience to go back to your earlier comments with a man because I'm not sure in this culture or society how men will react to this. But as it turned out, this man was a very, very compassionate, a very caring, a very um, deeply spiritual person himself. I felt safe with him. And I felt like I could trust him, even though it was, um, you know, a, a challenge to kind of get myself get myself there at the encouragement of friends. Mm-hmm. I think that's so important. So I think one of the realities is that a lot of survivors of rape end up feeling very isolated because number one, they don't feel like they can talk about it, and number two, if they do talk about it. If the content of the rape experience, particularly getting into college campus experiences, if what happened to them was confusing in terms of it being an acquaintance, that maybe someone they were dating and they wind up um, being 
sexually assaulted by a person they're dating or in a situation of partying and being drunk or being stoned or high or whatever, that it's really confusing in terms of was I really raped? Do, was it really a situation where I was out of control, sometimes saying, did I bring this on? Did I, did I lead him on? Or however all of the, the narrative happens. And I want to say, too, just as a caveat, that it's not only men raping women, but there is a very high incidence of male, male uh, transgendered rape. There's many kinds, uh, many situations. And as a matter of fact, it, at Harvard... Um, in the recent survey on sexual assault, it, the incidence of rape of um, transgendered and LGBTQ um, uh, young people is actually higher than it is uh, with straight, if you will, men, male, female, or or those kind of things. Well, that is surprising. Uh, so to it's me, but it's very it, it's, it's upsetting. not just that's another problem is that you kind of think, well, this is one thing and it's happening over there. Right. What happened to me it doesn't count. Uh, or something like that. I mean, right. uh, maybe we can even take a pause and um, talk about terminology. Sure. Um, in some ways, uh, the word rape is so powerful um, and so, you know, kind of evocative of so, so much horror that the, is sexual assault a preferred term or... You know, or is it better just to say what it is? Well, I know that there are certainly legal standards and legal terminology that that um, are used. I know that um, one of the terms that came out in the Harvard report, and it really was not just Harvard; it was uh, a survey of many uh, higher education institutions. But you know, we're talking about assault with penetration, and I think that the the definition of rape really is a penetration of an of a orifice. So it could be a mouth, it'd be a vaginal, it could be anal. So there's all kinds of um, penetration. And I think it's really, really important for people, particularly people in helping professions, counselors, chaplains, others, to know the terminology. And to be really clear that if somebody comes in and says, I was raped, to not, and they say, oh, I was raped. Uh, orally raped, you know, that people don't say, well, that's not rape. I mean, to know mm. what the terminology is and to know mm. the definitions just to be a, so that if someone chooses to move through a, a system of trying to get some justice for what happened, um, that you know what you're, what you're dealing with. Yeah. So. I, we, were, we were, you know, it, this was coming up in the news a lot because of the um, higher education scandals around uh, a lot of conversation. And in the newsroom, we would kind of say, oh, yeah, the rape story or something like that. Yeah. And it, it began to be, I became, I became uncomfortable with how easily we said the word. And, right. I, you know, you don't know who in the room right. has had the experience. So at some point, you know, we addressed it. Um, just by saying, like you know, just what I'm just aware that we're saying this word in a, in, you know, in a way that journalists have to use words, but but that it may be hard for some people, and so we want to make sure that we're also offering opportunities to talk if you want to talk to anybody, you know. Right. And so uh, it's it's a very um, because you you know the percentages are are too are obviously one percent right. would be too high, but they're very high, and so. Well, I think that it is really important to listen to the words that 
in my instance, the student is using when they're reporting or when they're wanting to just talk about it. Mm. And sometimes students will not use the word rape because it does sound too scary Mm -hmm. because they're just not ready to do that or they don't really understand. They have an image of what a rape is, thinking that a rape is walking down the street and someone jumps out and grabs you and pulls you into the bushes. Um, But, and that's a rape, but then they might be willing to use the word assault because it was scary and it was violent and Mm -hmm. it was, um, you know, not um, a normal sort of sexual encounter, if you will. Mm. And so I think it is really important to listen to, and then also as young adults begin to, or someone describes the experience, to name it maybe in, at moments for them in a very sensitive way, not to take words, put words in their mouth, but just say, you know, I think this sounds like, sounds like what I understand to be rape, and then to help yeah. parse that out right. with them a little bit. So, one, one of the stories that you tell um, is about when you're already a chaplain and um, you are, I guess, invited or crash a, a, student, <laughs> a women's student spirituality circle uh, and they're kind of like, yeah, uh, we don't need any religious authority here. Okay, <laughs> so don't pull rank. And you yep. were like, okay, okay, I yep. get it. Yep. Uh, but but it seemed like that was um, maybe even part of the journey of your healing in a way. Well, it was. And actually, it was an interesting moment. I was invited by um, a young woman who I had met before I went to the college where I was working at that point, um, McAllister College. And I had met her and then she had started this sort of feminist spirituality circle and she had me she said come but you know we're feminists which means we're flat organization so don't pull a rank and I was like fine I think I know how to do that so we went into the um, it, we had a, a evening session and I did not know what the topic was going to be actually when I went and sat down and then they introduced the topic and it really was a topic on when have you or anyone an acquaintance that you know experienced some form of assault and that evening it was absolutely stunning for me that every woman in the room had either experienced something of a, of a rape or a, some kind of a, another kind of assault. Sometimes in some instances it was actually a violent um, assault between a partner and another one, which is pretty awful. Um, but going around the room, everyone talked about those experiences. And that evening, I was fussing for the whole evening, feeling more and more uneasy. I was sort of fussing with, I am, even though they don't want me to pull rank, I am the chaplain, so I have to kind of stay within that identity and that understanding, that professionalism and the boundaries that are sort of incumbent of being a chaplain, often which means that we don't disclose a lot of personal things about our life because then it kind of turns and becomes all about us. But that evening, I felt that the invitation to share really was coming to all of us. And because they had sort of set the terms that I was part of the group and not a chaplain, I was in that kind of really, really interesting territory of trying to figure out what I was going to say. And I decided that evening to tell the story of my own experience of rape, sexual assault out 
in Washington State, and it happened about 20 years before, almost 20 years to the month before. And in disclosing that to the students, I mean, all the things were just running through my mind, like, are they, is this going to be made all about me? Well, I was fairly new at the college. Are they going to, am I going to become the chaplain that only deals with issues of sexual assault with students? And that would be enough, frankly. But um, for me, it would be enough to be able to be with students in those very, very difficult moments of their life. But what really happened, I think, for me, I don't know what happened for the other students in any, we didn't process it afterwards or anything like that. What kind of feminist circle is it? (laughs) That we didn't process. (laughs) Well, we processed later. But that evening, we did not sit and say, okay, let's have the conversation about what's it like to be a chaplain and what do you, you know, none of that. So I um, I did share the story of my own experience. And what I realized for me personally was that I stepped into a new role of really understanding that part of being present to a community and part of being present to young adults in very formative stages of their development is to be disclosive of brokenness and of woundedness and of uncertainty, both personally and in my instance, theologically. And I remember having this image that Sort of floated by that evening when I was sitting with the students of Ruth and Naomi and Orpha who were standing out on a plane together and trying to make a decision about a ver- about their future and thinking that in some sense that being willing to kind of ac- acknowledge their they were all widows that they were very vulnerable and that they could take their life and in the instance of Ruth and her mother-in-law to move into newness of life. And I didn't talk about that story that night, but I just sat there thinking, there is something new that is breaking through here by telling the truth about your life. Mm. One of the terms you use, uh, well, in the book is thresholds. Um, And what does that term mean to you? Well, I think it's an interesting um, question because, and it also is an interesting metaphor, because I think that in many ways, a threshold is a place that you go that provides history and future. So as a person stands on a threshold, the threshold is is a place of entry and exit. It's a place of possibility and of closure. And I think in a sense that the the metaphor really works for for my for me in terms of the interesting uh, reality that someone crossed someone crossed a threshold in my life and did a lot of harm and damage. And my work as a chaplain is to cross the threshold of the soul of human beings, of young adults at this point in history and have the possibility of being able to enter lives with depth and with honesty and with candor and with being able to understand that I'm not here on my own, that I am here on purpose and I am here on purpose because I believe that God had a pretty amazing future for me in terms of the work that I might do on college campuses with young adults. Which has been true. Uh, Perhaps we can close us with just some thoughts about... um, how people who are in community, whether family or friends, 
or um, acquaintances with someone who has experienced the horror of a sexual assault or a rape, what are some ways to be present for them without it just turning into something that defines them? That's a really good question. I think um, the first thing to do is to be present in listening and being aware that a person doesn't get over this. And I think it's like any other really awful thing that happens in life, whether it's the death of a parent or a child or something that is very tragic in one's life, that what tends to happen in particularly the American culture is that we say, okay, we'll give you maybe a month to get over this. Or in the case of Jewish culture, you know, they have a a ceremony after a year to be able to honor the life of or the loss. And I think in a way, a sexual assault, someone that has experienced that really is going through a process of grief, of um, of difficult, you know, a very, a very um, difficult, challenging process of healing. And with healing, sometimes it feels worse before it feels better. So I think in a sense that what what is the best approach or what I would recommend is, number one, understand that you don't get over it. In other words, you don't jump over it and walk away. Almost like the willingness to be able to go the opposite direction or the the kind of the way that might seem a little bit untoward to go deeper into it and to really be honest about how difficult that experience has been for somebody. And then to allow the person to name themselves in terms of even things like if a person is using language, I'm a victim of sexual assault or I'm a survivor of sexual assault, to listen very closely because those words will have very um, important meaning and, and need to be heard in the way of um, interpreting how the person is understanding where they are in their own healing process. And not immediately correct them. No, you're a survivor. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, yes, I think it's exactly. okay, even if you'd rather them not call themselves one thing, just listen. Just listen yeah. and not have an agenda. And I think the other thing is I hear students, survivors, victims, survivors say that one of the things that happens is that people, their peers get a little tired of hearing about it, you know, and so then it silences the process. And also, I hear a lot of students talk about families just not being able to handle it or not being able to understand or be supportive in the way that they would hope that they would, and either in denial or, oh my gosh, I'm going to go out and find that SOB and kill them, you know, I mean, lots of reactions, and to just be willing to um, allow the person to be where they are at the moment and also to find the resources that they need to be able to heal. So I think one of your earlier questions was, how did you find this person that helped you? And I hope that on campuses today that we can identify chaplains who are confidential conversation partners, that, that we can identify rape crisis centers, that we can get people to the counseling centers, that we can start forming groups, not only for people who have experienced this, but preventative groups. Well, and I also think, stop. I think the kind of conversation we're having today, I honestly think every Harvard student should have some kind of conversation like that, you know, whether 
male or female, to recognize that this is about being an adult. You know, yes. it's about being a responsible civic leader, which I, I, I think Harvard has every intention of of, of nurturing that. Yes. And and you cannot ignore these kind of skill sets, uh, which are really about being present. Yes, um, exactly. And so uh, I think. I think it's important to recognize the professionals, but also recognize the role that everyone right. should feel they are um, both equipped but also responsible for. I absolutely agree with you. I think one of the things, one of the insights that I came to even pretty recently in preaching a sermon at Memorial Church about sexual assault was um, that in some ways— what we're trying to promise to students these days is a safe space to be able to do their work. And essentially, when a student uh, undergraduate comes to a university or a college like Harvard College, they're coming to a place where they understand that to be their home for four years. And homes need to be safe spaces. Homes need to be places where students feel like they can be fully actualized and be fully the people that they are to be sexually healthy human beings, to be engaged with people in intimate, loving relationships. So what has happened in a university or a college where what happens when, when this kind of thing becomes a pandemic is that the space becomes very, very scary and a fearful space and a silencing space and a shutdown space for students to be able to, I mean, you think you get shut down in or, so that even pursuing your academic career gets thwarted because of these kind of experiences. So I, my call <laughs> to um, my colleagues and to students and to everyone involved in higher education is to make sure that we create home for our students in the fullest sense of that word, where they can be completely ready and prepared to lead a world out of some of the mires that we find ourselves in. Chaplain Lucy Forrester-Smith, thank you so much for being with me on All Together. Thank you. If you need help, please call 800-656-HOPE. That's 800-656-4673. And you will be connected with a trained staff member from a sexual assault service provider in your area. Thank you for joining me this week on All Together. I wish we could be protected from the horror and violence of our world, including sexual assault. Instead, all I or any of us can offer is to try to stand with one another with support and compassion as we heal as individuals and as communities. Until next week, be well. This episode of All Together is produced by Caitlin Baguki and edited by Nick Offenberg. <laughs>